If we understand data as purely like a colonial project, the data that we're talking about has historically been settler data and research produced on us, not by us or for us. I would really like to see open access and ease of access to a lot of the archives. I really would like to see some of these hard to find out of print books digitized and open access for independent Native researchers. Tribal historians should also have open access to these things. Of course, that's data that's being collected and that's knowledge that we're creating. And of course, UCLA, the IRB and all the policies would say that UCLA owns that knowledge. And so there was this friction of us needing to basically assert our data sovereignty. I never once published any transcription of the songs that we've done through my research. For a reason, I want to mitigate the risk of appropriation. And this is the main reason why we want to get the songs back, meaning full control, taking them out of circulation, taking them out of those archives. Welcome to Challenging Colonialism, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of Indigenous California. An important note from the start, the producers are two white male educator academics, and these are not our stories. This podcast centers Native voices, and our intention is to highlight the significant work being done by Indigenous communities to challenge ongoing colonialism and to broadcast information about the resistance and resilience of Indigenous California in the past, present, and the future. In this episode, you'll hear from Native scholars discussing intellectual property, research methodology, and Indigenous data sovereignty. This episode, between Washayo Elvitre, Sedona Gomen-Sholsky, Robin Gray, and Carolyn Rodriguez, brings many of these issues together with discussion of who owns and controls the data that results from research, whether that research data was or is collected ethically or not, by whom, and for what purpose. My name is Sedona Gomenshulski, and I'm a PhD student at the Institute of Environment and Sustainability. I'm Tanawanda Band of Seneca uh, by descent through my grandfather, and I study the importance and quirks of land back and land access for Indigenous people. My background is in Indigenous archaeology, particularly focused on repatriation and collections management of archaeological materials and their associated archives. That's how I started to think about data sovereignty and understand the need for the protections from institutional greed and overconsumption of native knowledge and records, i.e. native data. So for my part, uh, I'm also an emerging scholar. I'm a PhD student, but uh, before I started grad school, I worked in repatriation for three to six years, depending on how you count involvement. The first few years more as a community member or adjacent community member, not as a Tongva person. I'm not Tongva, but obviously I'm Seneca, very strong Seneca. And, um, but I have been, you know, my first repatriation was in 2016. And so that's when I start thinking about these things. Um, The first time I helped with the repatriation was 2016 on the community side, where I was hired by uh, Cogstone uh, and Desiree Martinez to do repatriation, a repatriation between UCLA and three tribes, four tribes. A lot of people, a lot of ancestors. There were 2,000 ancestors reburied, and I was I was tapped to help make them able to go home and just prepare them for homecoming. That's kind of when I delved into the world of understanding what data is to Western to settler society, because I think to answer your question, we have to actually go back to okay, what is data? Data itself means something different to depending on what subfield you're in. So for a historian, that data could be an archival record, right? I'm a trained archaeologist. 
I always learned that data is anything that is material culture up to and including our own bones. So they took everything from us. We are the data. (laughs) The very basis of data at the university that built it up is the land grab. And that land grab is made possible by making Native people in the past, which is made possible by archaeology. So it all comes down to the theft of our literal bodies. So to me, I could see that process educating people at the university administrative level because I was listening to tribal members and leaders have these very intense conversations back and forth with the administration about, no, this is our information. What are you going to do about repatriation of our information? I think it's just a matter of shifting that understanding of what data is as not just our genetic material or our blood or things like that. We're also talking about our stories like that also needs to be protected just like our ancestors do. So do our present people and our descendants. My name is Carolyn Rodriguez. I am an Amalmutsin tribal member. My ancestors were enslaved at Mission San Juan Batista. My homelands is like San Juan Batista area, you know, up to Monterey. Um, But then within our community, we also have tribal members that descend from ancestors, I believe, that were enslaved at Mission Santa Cruz. You know, we went through three different timeframes of brutal colonization between Spanish, Mexican, and American. And so for me, you know, learning that history, I'm, I learned it as an adult. Um, growing up, I wasn't fully connected to our traditions and our ancestors and like the knowledge that our community holds. And so um, when I hit college time, <laughs> that's when, you know, I went to UC Santa Cruz and I really started to learn about my cultural identity. And so I also worked at the Educational Opportunity Programs Office. And so that's where I learned a lot about Native students and just um, issues with retention and, you know, academic achievement and just getting us enrolled at in higher education. And so I came into UCLA. Um, I got my master's in American Indian Studies. And as I continued on, you know, currently I'm a fourth year PhD student in education, social research methodology. Something that just pops in my mind is like academic imperialism. You know, historically, the way research was done on Indigenous people was dehumanizing and was hurtful. And, you know, at UCLA, in different departments, like I don't see those departments. They're not engaging with the fact that research can be dehumanizing. You know, when we're approaching this type of data collection with Indigenous people, our, you know, um, faculty making the changes in their practices and are they teaching that to the next generation of researchers and scientists or are they just um, continuing the historical colonial violence of research? There can be different data policies at the UCs. Sometimes it's cloaked in copyright law or copyright policy um, where the university will say, if you are employed by the university, your intellectual knowledge, you're producing this for the university, ergo, this is the university's property you can't take your research with you to another institution. And none of those things that I've seen have included social scientific data or humanities data um, or archives or records. Like none of it has included that. It's all been about biomedical stuff and things that make money. To me, indigenous communities have always had the right to like their own way of life, their own knowledge, their own culture, you know, like their traditions, their songs and everything. And, you know, it wasn't until when colonizers arrived when they said, oh, no, we're in charge now. So to me, it kind of goes back to this power dynamic. 
colonizers were the ones that came in and said, everything that you know, no longer matters. It's no longer valid. It's kind of like our knowledge and everything was looked down upon, like it was not considered worthy. And I feel like as Indigenous people, we are worthy, we've been worthy. It's just like within the society that we live in today, we have organizations, institutions, people in power that uphold the structure of colonialism. It's important for community members and people to control their own data, just as much as it's important for tribes on a larger scale. There's different ways dispossession comes about. Data, historically, has been a main uh, support system for the dispossession of Native peoples. If the goal of Native studies as a field is to turn that and make research helpful to Native communities and, and important for Native communities' survivance, then we need to have control over the data itself. Hello, my name is Wishoyo Alvitre. I am a Tongva comic book artist and illustrator and writer and a few other things. Growing up in a, a house that was subdivided into Indian Center on the weekends and having a father that was doing research work during the week probably subliminally sort of set my mind into wanting to know more about our history and wanting to sort of collect these things in academic papers. Um, Growing up, I didn't really pay much attention to it. You know, I wasn't like on my dad's lap, like, you know, looking at these things. I was a kid. But as I got older and then I started sort of asking my dad questions about our heritage, about things that he knew and how he knew them. And then these stories started forming like, oh, well, how did you get this document? Oh, an anthropologist or a friend of mine on this one job, he happened to, you know, find this thing and it was pertinent to our tribe. And so he ran a photocopy off for me or gave me this book or gave me this paper. Um, and it wasn't until I really started digging around in these things and finding some of the things available online, but also finding some of the things only available in like uh, reference libraries um, where you'd have to actually go in within the collection, like in the Huntington. Did I realize so many of our things that were collected kind of without our permission are being held in these places? And they're not accessible to us easily. You know, a lot of the, the material has been digitized in my lifetime, particularly in the last about 10, 15 years. But that wasn't an option for my dad. It was so rare for him to actually obtain anything. Most of the time, it was a friend that was either a, you know, an archaeologist working on a site or a friend in academics, non-native usually, that would sort of be like, oh, I have this paper. If you want a copy, I can get you a copy. But it was all very underhandedly done, like, you know, almost like black market type of stuff. And it shouldn't be that way. You know, they were collected from our people as some of the very last survivors were telling those stories and being willing to sing ceremony songs like on wax cylinder recordings, things that many people within our tribal communities weren't even privy to hear. Understanding data the way that we've been talking about it, if we understand data as purely like a colonial project, the data that we're talking about historically has been settler data and research produced on us, not by us or for us. If we think about it that way, you can think of something like an ethnography that a settler wrote, like uh, Harrington, for example, um, or over in our territory, uh, Morgan, Lewis Henry Morgan. Those lead to maps and data and things about us that led to directly our dispossession. So data collection and research has always been a colonial project. We're trying that Native Studies has grappled with a lot, actually, since Native Studies inception, I'm sure there's been people dealing with how are we going to turn this research on its head and make it for us and by us instead of on us? 
I do remember when I was an undergrad, there was another graduate student, like she was like, probably at her dissertation level. And I remember her sharing her experience of her community and tribal songs and how they were on these wax wheels and um, how they were being stored at at a university. And it, it was like a huge battle to basically get access to just hear the songs. We do have access to our songs, but they're being sung by someone that's not Mutsin. Like they were a community member who learned it. And I think they were married into the community, but like they're not actual a descendant. I just explained that Tuit is my Tsimtian name and Robin Gray is my English name. I am Tsimtian from unceded territories in Lahualams, British Columbia, up in Canada. And I am Gisputwada or Blackfish Killer Whale Clan from the House of Liam Laha and the Gitahangik tribe. I'm also Mixu Cree with Dene roots from uh, Fort Chippewan, Alberta in Treaty 8 territory. I am currently an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, which includes a non-budgetary cross-appointment in the Graduate Department of Sociology at the downtown St. George campus uh, for U of T. And I'm also cross-appointed with the Department of Anthropology. Um, And this year, this academic year, I have uh, accepted a new and unprecedented role as a special advisor on rematriation to the vice president and principal at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. Very few people in the museums and archive communities or even amongst Indigenous peoples hadn't really thought much about knowledge. And so knowledges include things like oral histories, that have been recorded, maybe even photographs, because there's stories attached to the photographs. And um, in my case, um, I've been working with songs. Songs also have been recorded primarily using audio recordings. There's also languages, right? So languages have been captured in the early contact period, especially by missionaries who were really trying to (laughs) advance the assimilation project of the state. And one of those ways was to transcribe Bibles in the Indigenous language. As a PhD student um, in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, I was more interested in the landscape of reclamation for Indigenous peoples. You know, what's at stake? What kind of obstacles are there? What are the possibilities? So I was interested in reclamation, broadly speaking, and from vantage of multiple indigenous communities. But I'm also a singer and a dancer in a Tsimtsian dance group from Vancouver, BC, where I was born and raised. And in the mid nineties, uh, this dance group, La Chaine, started uh, by Christine Martin to create a sense of placeness out of place for Tsimtsian outside of our territory. So. Vancouver's in Coast Salish territories, Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, um, and our territories are hundreds and uh, kilometers north, right, up near Alaska. And 
uh, the dance group really was a cultural enclave for people, right, to reclaim our Timpsianness. And so I know the benefit it has had on my family. So one time when I came home over, you know, a summer break or something, we were having these discussions as a dancing and singing community about how we represent ourselves as Simpsian people through dancing and through song. And it was like a critical collective consciousness uh, really saying, you know, we're struggling, we're reclaiming, but are we doing it right? Are we, you know, are we really centering our Simpsianness um, and not just sort of doing a generic sort of indigenous cultural representation? So, you know, I love Lachem. And so when the leader of our dance group, Christine, one day, she just like, hey, can you keep an eye out for our songs while you're out there doing your studies? And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> I don't even know how to look out for songs. How does one look out for songs? And I did the like instinctive thing, go to Google, like put in Simpsian songs and see what happens, you know, or go into the academic research databases and do the same and see what happens. Because she just knew that they were out there somewhere because of all those legacies, right? The forms of hyper dispossession that our community has had to face. And in a serendipitous moment, you know, a few months later, a graduate student in my department, she had uh, was a cultural heritage scholar. And I had been engaging these questions in the cultural heritage research community much more um, while a student there. And she came to me one day and she was like, hey, Robin, aren't you you're Simshian, right? I just like wanted to make sure. I was like, all right, look at you remembering my nation. But what I didn't expect was what she said next. And she said, you know, I was just looking at some metadata of a collection of songs um, in this archive at Columbia University. And I saw a bunch of Simshian songs, like what? So like maybe these songs found me. I go, did they say where they were, were recorded? She goes, someplace it said Port Simpson and uh, Prince Rupert. And then I got chills again because Port Simpson is my village. Um, so almost everyone, the vast majority of the people in my dance group, all trace their lineage to Lahulams, Port Simpson. It felt super serendipitous. It felt like these songs found me and I just felt compelled. Like I need to go out and figure out if this is actual collection or if they are actually Tintian and see if our people actually want to get them back and how that should look. But it forced me into this role of responsibility, right? And I, I, I talk a lot about Indigenous methodologies in my work and the importance of them, you know, the ethics, the protocols, um, and it's really about responding to the unique needs and priorities of community, right? I was like, well, this is a need. I could talk, think about things generally and sort of in generic terms, or I can address a real issue, right? And be there and use my skills and do what Christine anticipated I could do by her asking me, of all people, to keep an eye out for our songs. She just knew, right? So in 2012, that's when I reached out to Columbia University, got the ball rolling, went up there to the archive. In that process, we were able to discover that although there were about 41 uh, Simshan audio recordings listed in the metadata, we had to figure out who this Laura Bolton lady was and, you know, how the collection even got there, how the so Simshan songs became caught up in it all. 
what the perspective of the institution was around ownership and and control. And from Columbia's perspective, they owned it. They're like, we own these songs and anyone who wants to access them must seek the permission of the director of the Center for Ethnomusicology. Anyone who wants to publish um, or transcribe the content of the music they're in must also ask permission. <laughs> and like, they were very, very explicit about that. So that sort of compelled me to start thinking about a research paradigm that would help bring the songs back, but also consider repatriation as a like a legitimate, realistic option. But I knew that I couldn't do it alone. I knew that I couldn't rely on ethnomusicologists. You know, I wasn't interested in studying music and I'm not, I still am not. I never once published any transcription of the songs that we've done through my research. For a reason, I want to mitigate the risk of appropriation. And this is the main reason why we want to get the songs back, meaning full control. Um, taking them out of circulation, taking them out of those archives and reconstituting their use value back into our community. So I started um, these series of listening gatherings. And so I would go home. In some, I basically have done um, since 2012, community-based, multi-sided autoethnographic research. In the first weekend that I brought these songs back to Lacholams and then into Prince Rupert and then into Vancouver. So those are the three main research sites. I start in Lacholams because that's where the songs were recorded. And then also Prince Rupert, which is the main urban locale in Tsimpchan territory and where there's the majority of Tsimpchan people sort of live there once they leave the villages. And then in Vancouver, where there's a huge, a significant portion of the Tsimpchan diaspora. So I was meeting my people where they are instead of just saying, hey, FYI, here's the contact information of this guy at Columbia University. And each one of you, each individual can go ahead and go and do that, experience that violation of having to go and ask permission to access your ancestors' songs. And then once you access them, what are you going to do with them? How do you even know how to listen to them? You know, when we have limited language fluency, maybe they don't have the time or the resources to gather Simpshan people to, to have these discussions. And so it would still be very isolated and individualized. And I don't think it would address the legacies, right? The legacies of salvage anthropology, of these salvage paradigms and of um, indigenous dispossession. And so that was really about access, right? So it wasn't individuals going out of their way to ask permission. And then we did talking circles, which were to think about the question of, of law and legality around songs. And so that's where we activated our knowledge about our ayao, um, Simtian, which is Simtian law, and how we would apply ayao to a repatriation case study. In this case, it's the first repatriation case study my community has ever had. And it happened to be starting with songs of all things, which is something the global repatriation movement hadn't even really considered. Like what's at stake in a song repatriation process, a, a process of return when we're dealing with the intangible, but it's made tangible in the recording. And it's the knowledge product that gets protected under intellectual property laws. So that's how they were able to sustain the dispossession, right? That's how you can see the reach of indigenous dispossession in the archive. Mind you, when I brought these songs home in 2012 in October, it was the first time I had ever set foot in my village because I was born and raised in Vancouver. I was 32 years old. 
I was coming back for the first time in my life. So I was repatriated in that sense. That same weekend, my family, the House of Liam Laha, feasted, held a potlatch in anthropological jargon, but a feast, a lulgit in our language. We held that feast. It's the first time the House of Liam Laha had feasted in over 70 years because of something like the potlatch ban under the Indian Act in Canada, which made it illegal for our people to potlatch and express ourselves publicly in that way up until the 1950s. So the fact that I was coming home, our family for the first time to reintegrate into our sovereignty structure through the act of feasting, me setting foot in my territory for the first time and meeting my people, and at the same time, bringing these songs and saying, let's, hey, I'm here. I, ha I have this collection of songs. Come hear this, the voices of your ancestors. And like 50 people showed up that day. And, you know, Sagi Paig, who's my main linguistic uh, partner, and he's a hereditary chief um, in our community. You know, he was like, wow, I was surprised. I thought 10 shares would be enough. I didn't imagine all of our people would show up. But that goes to show you how thirsty they are for this. And at the end, when we did our protocol, they were like, yep, keep doing what you're doing. This is what we want. Thank you for doing it in a good way. And then keeping me accountable too. Like, oh, my own chief said straight up to me in front of all those people, my uncle, you know, who's the chief of our house, his name is Liam Laha. That's why we're from the house of Liam Laha. And he said, you know, how are you going to keep these people updated? You know, you're going off, you study, you live way over there. Like so many people come in here, do a study and we never see them again. So he was like, you might be Simshian. You might be Simshian from Lachwalams. That You're still an anthropologist. You're still a researcher. You still don't live here. You still never have lived here. And that was real. Right. And I was like, you're right. You're right. And so, you know, I took that to heart and, and, and you're, I wanted to make sure that I didn't perpetuate that same experience over and over again with our people. So it has been really, really fruitful, really healing, really generative for our people to, to, to work through this, these methods together in the way that we have. And um, for me to meet my people where they are in these three sites. Um, and it's been 10 years now. And guess what? Columbia still owns <laughs> so even though I've been talking about this for years now, starting with my PhD dissertation um, titled Tipsian Revolution, the Poetics and Politics of Reclaiming, that's from 2015, um, you know, publishing a little, you know, chapter in the Oxford Handbook of Musical Repatriation and accepting invited talks um, all over, including in New York, where this collection is housed like I said, it's been generative because I've been able to do what my community has asked me to do, which is make sure you go out there and teach them about our law. People need to know that they are in violation of Timsian law. You know, we're doing our best to show how their law is inadequate, <laughs> is inadequate when it comes to Timsian cultural heritage. Timsian law, um, the way that property works is we're a matrilineal society. So all of our rights flow through the mother. So I'm Gisbutwada Gidahangig from the House of the Amlaha because my mom is and her mom was and her mom was, etc. And it's really through women that you can pass on rights. So my brother can't pass on these same rights. I can't. And so we think about property and legality, right? And personhood and even nationhood very differently, which is why 
I have come to this conclusion that perhaps repatriation is an inadequate concept to describe what it is I'm experiencing on the ground in a process of return with my people. What I'm experiencing is an adherence to those type of property systems, right? A negation of the possessive logics of patriarchal white sovereignty in the words of one of my sheroes, Dr. Eileen Morton Robinson. Right. So so it compelled me to say, yeah, no, rematriation is probably more appropriate because we are like, what does it mean to return property to a society where rights flow through women, (laughs) where property flows through women as well? And I'm thinking of like Narcisa Rosemeyer specifically because she was documented as the last fluent speaker of the Gabrielino Tonga language. And she was also a singer of sort of our mortuary songs. And I, I believe on the recording and in, in like an interview from the person that made the recordings of the wax cylinders of her songs, she kind of states like, well, there's nobody to give these to you anymore. She wasn't doing it for like, you know, money. She was she was doing it as as if like, well, if I don't do this, then maybe they're just gone forever when I die. And I'm sure she sort of grew up understanding the effects of relocation, you know, during a time where they were sort of moving tribal communities that were already um, kind of decimated and broken apart from the mission system. And then also from the, the gold rush era in America coming into California, it was sort of remnants of tribes. Like everyone was just basically on survival mode, trying to maintain their livability as it was. I mean, it's just kind of how we, how we are as native people, like to think ahead, think of the next generation. Even if you're like facing like multiple apocalypses, you're still thinking about survival and you're thinking about your children's survival. And so what can you give those people in some small way that will hopefully be a seed to sort of benefit future communities? And I really do think that was sort of the mindset of a lot of the people that J.P. Harrington worked with, um, a lot of the the Chumash informants and the Tongva Gabrielino informants. So um, I've always had a very hard time learning language in the way that language is sort of taught in the Western school and um, academics and stuff where you sort of learn nouns, verbs, you know, all these things, singular, plural, this and that, and sentence structure. And it it was always sort of like a, a brick wall for me. Um, and I didn't understand why, because I can learn other things really easily. But music has always been something that I've really been able to sort of pick up by ear quickly. I can't read music, but I can like listen to something and be like, it it clicks a little bit easier for me. And learning foreign language and song has been something that has been much easier than learning conversational language. And so when I found out that we actually had some of our songs on Wax Cylinder recording, I was just ferocious and trying to like find where they were and some way to listen to them because I knew being able to hear like a sound of whatever the the timing, the the repetition was all very important to the sound of what our language sounded like. And so I I sought out our wax cylinder recordings through Smithsonian. Um, They're supposed to also be in the library up north, I think in Berkeley. And there's a a whole program that was sort of developed, I think about 15, 20 years called the Breath of Life. And basically what they do is they pair academics with Native communities. They realize that they have all of these individual tribes on wax cylinder. Some may have more songs or more uh, spoken word than other groups, but they know that the communities, if they can sort of connect these people that know language from an academic standpoint and connect them to tribal community members that are trying to learn their language, then it can be extremely beneficial. And it's been like a tremendous thing for them to be able to hear their language spoken. 
so that was, you know, my personal sort of, I would love to be able to get these wax cylinders and be able to do something like that, or even just to hear them. So I reached out to various archives, you fill out the paperwork. And I think the first one that had finally gone through was during the very first couple of months of COVID lockdown. And with that, of course, there's much more delay than there would have been normally. But of course, there's always going to be delays with academic stuff. So I heard back from somebody from their records department. She said, oh, well, yeah, we have those. And we actually handed them out to a tribal community member probably like... 15 years ago. And so in order to like pass these along to you, we actually need you to reach out to that person to try to get those because he was supposed to be sort of the the care holder for these songs. And so, you know, I'm going to jump through all the hoops that I possibly can because I'm (laughs) going to be on their back. And so I sought out this person and I couldn't, you know, contact him directly. I sent emails to his uh, email on file. There was a phone number. I left a message and never heard back. I reached out to some other people that are working down um, with the UCLA linguist on doing um, language classes down there. And they said, yeah, he used to attend, but I, I don't think he does anymore. We don't really know. So I couldn't get a straight answer. So I went back to Smithsonian and I explained the situation to them. At this point, I think about six to eight months had gone by. And I just said, look, I have reached out as much as I can. Is there anything else that you can do for this? And she said, well, yeah, let me like look into it a little bit further. And so several months again went by and she wrote me back and she said, well, we can send them to you. But if we send them to you, you have to do so with um, the agreement that you are now going to be the, you know, the go to person. If you have any other tribal community members that want these you know, files, you're sort of the holder of them. And I said, well, that's kind of a lot of you know weight to put on a person, especially when our community here in Los Angeles is very fragmented. It's very, you know, there's different bands, there's in-person fighting, there's this and that, all that stuff. And I said, well, yeah, sure. Okay. I agree to it. You know, like it's part of a responsibility, I guess, if I'm going to take these on to access them to also allow and not be a gatekeeper for other people within the community that want to learn. So I agreed to it. And eventually, you know, months passed and I was sent sort of sound files on MP4 through like a, a digital folder. And I, I've got the the wax cylinder recordings, but I think it was about two, two and a half years from like start to finish trying to get them and then trying to track them down before that. Like I was buying these old indexes online of J.P. Harrington recordings and trying to track them from back in the 30s when the Berkeley Library had them. And then when they went to like regular tape and then there was all this stuff about them sort of uh, restoring wax cylinders and digitizing all the wax cylinders. But yeah, it's just a long process. And it was just, you know, it was a lot of back and forth email. I think a normal person probably would have given up after the first (laughs) seven or eight emails. But um, no, I just, I'm really stubborn. So, and I really wanted to listen to these songs. And so I just kept on. I would hope that the younger generation would want to learn the songs. However, um, people all are dealing with their own sort of levels of trauma. I always have to remember that on what it is that they can withstand. And because it is a lot of sort of unresolved trauma when you go out and you pursue institutions or academic places, asking for your own things to be given back to you. It's a lot of sort of grief and it can stir up a lot of different emotions. Like with my dad, he would just get very angry about a lot of it and for good reason. However, you know, a lot of the time when you sort of present these situations with anger, it's they're gonna shut more doors. And so I've tried to sort of suppress that a little bit for the the outcome and hoping that I can make more progress forward in obtaining these things. Because eventually that's the end goal. Like 
get the things back that have been taken from you, you know, because honestly, they, they don't have any right to hold them from tribal communities. There are so many different ways that they keep these things away from people, especially if you're in like a community that maybe doesn't have internet access, like a lot of people are, they can't easily just go and download large files and get these things. So I think the the institutions are just so far from being aware to those sensitivities of what everybody's going through, whether it's financial, whether it's emotional, whether it's, uh, you know, grief and trauma and dealing with it on that end. I mean, even today, like, you know, without going too much into the dynamics on how families inherit those songs and how they're learned and how they're not just given to anybody, not any particular person that has an interest in learning that type of thing is allowed to learn that. It was something that either a family was known for and it was sort of within their family line. Each generation that learned it really had to show their previous connected generation, you know, why they wanted to learn those things. Just the customs of treating your dead with respect and the the long processes that we had in dealing with grief and processing the death of a loved one in like a respectful way, but allowing the family to grieve, you know, for a year or whatever was customary during the time. And then also going through and um, potentially taking their belongings and doing something with those. It sort of varies tribes to tribe and things in California, but there's a lot of similarities to those things. I've sort of studied a lot of the practices and things that people have written about, about our mortuary ceremonies, and then also our customs of dealing with those that have deceased. The form of, you know, entering your family is based on sort of tradition through whatever religion that your family may follow is customary. For us, it's very uh, prevalent. We had one way of dealing with our dead prior to colonization. And very soon after, with the advent of the mission system, that tradition was altered and changed to reflect more of sort of, I guess, the Catholic Christian sort of methodologies of dealing with deceased bodies. Um so even in something, you know, as simple as, okay, when somebody dies, this is what you do with them, our entire world and how we were able to handle that had changed. And that also goes with, you know, the, the mission system banning our, our religion and our ability to sing our songs, our ability to carry out these things that we would normally do as a community in not only remembering the person that had passed away, but making sure that all of the families that you know, were impacted by the death, had been supported in having food to eat. You know, when you're grieving, it's not something that people aren't just going to go cook dinner for themselves. You know, our communities used to help feed the people. They would make sure that they were taken care of. I focus on qualitative research in Indigenous education. And so for me, when I collect data, how do I collect data in a meaningful way? At UCLA, I got really interested in working at the Center for Diverse Leadership in Science. And so that organization, you know, it started collaborating with the Alma Mutsa Land Trust. And through that, I really became in um, learning a lot about water and like the health of water and salmon migration. And for me, it's I'm learning the Western scientific methods, but at the same time, I'm reconnecting with my cultural identity and like I'm growing by learning. And so that's where I'm really thinking about knowledge that our community holds and how we tap into that knowledge, especially when our community enters research and when we're using research to learn what our ancestors knew or to validate what our ancestors knew. I see it as Indigenous data sovereignty. We live in this digital world as Indigenous people. 
doing research or just, you know, living our lives, we're engaging in this world. And so our knowledge that we have in our community, if we put that and share that with digital platforms, then then we do need to be thinking about our sovereignty over that knowledge. But then for me, I also see data sovereignty as like within my own work and how when I'm out collecting data, you know, I'm doing interviews, I'm making observations, I'm taking photos. And that becomes data itself. And I, you know, I store that on my phone, I store that on Google Docs. And so that's, again, this data that I have to think about who owns it at the end of the day, and making sure that the community has the final say of how to store it, where it goes, who gets to see it, it's a private public, published or not published online. And so it's all about just the, um, just like, community wants and needs at the end of the day. And so I have to report to my community of what I do with the data that I collect. I think it's important to talk about in this. I know you, I know we're talking more about data sovereignty, but I think it's really intertwined because everything Carolyn's talking about with universities and and where data is produced is largely at these universities and research institutions. All these research institutions started collecting things that became NAGPRA eligible and people. And that's where all that started for Native Studies is our voices, our bodies, our stories, and our belongings. That's the source of the information. (laughs) And we don't have access to that properly, especially if you're not federally recognized. When you look at it that way, Sovereignty, bodily sovereignty, individual sovereignty, tribal sovereignty, all of those things are really wrapped up in how we're able to access that. Repatriation becomes a real big issue to me is very foundational because you can't have respect between institutions and you can't have good agreements uh, about ownership over data. You can't have that good relationship building if you're still holding people hostage in, in museum shelves. So that's kind of where I started coming at it from that. So I started delving into more what Indigenous data sovereignty means. Um, my understanding is that this has been a conversation in the work for at least a decade. In 2019, in 2019, the the Global Indigenous Data Alliance came together. Basically, it's this group of people. It's uh, convened by Maggie Walter, Desi Rodriguez, Lone Bear, uh, pulled together a workshop in 2019 that kind of brought together this group. Uh, and then Stephanie Russo Carroll helped make the CARE principles. So it's FAIR and CARE. FAIR standing for findable, accessible, interoperable, reusable, and CARE, collective benefit, authority to control, responsibility, and ethics. I think all of us who work with Indigenous communities and do community work have to confront this issue of data ownership, especially as universities like UCLA and like the UCs at large have been cracking down on their policies about data. Most of those policies are looked at from the non-Native perspective. They're not including the kind of data that Native people have become. I'm just thinking about this from just my experience on the project. And, you know, when CDLS, Center for Diverse Leadership and Science, they were working with the Amulets and Land Trust with, you know, getting the grant started and getting funding in order to do work in marine science. You know, there was this big discussion about who owns the data for different policy reasons or administrative reasons. When the grant or like the IRB, when everything was submitted, the project was flagged because, you know, we're saying that the knowledge, it is tied to Thalmamutsun tribal band. It is a part of our cultural revitalization and really validating the traditional ecological knowledge that our ancestors have known and that we're trying to relearn and start passing to future generations. 
And so when we decide that we're going to work with CDLS and focus on water health and identify a creek where we can look at the health of the water and salmon migration and making sure that salmon have access to the path of the water and can continue to reproduce in a healthy way um, for, you know, for their reproduction. We're doing scientific work, yes, like from this Western lens, but then a part of the reasons why we're doing these methods, it's because of our cultural knowledge. Of course, the partners, we all know, okay, this is tribal knowledge where, you know, CDLS is supporting the work of the tribe through the land trust. And of course, that's data that's being collected and that's knowledge that we're creating. And of course, UCLA um, and IRB and all the policies would say that UCLA owns that knowledge. And so there was this friction of us needing to basically assert our our data sovereignty. Chairman Val Lopez, he took this up to UCOP and he were able to work with people at UCOP who then were stepped in and just helped with the situation. I don't know how institutionalized that is as a policy, because the last policy I read still didn't have anything specific about anything other than scientific or biomedical data. It's all very loosey-goosey when it comes to the social science stuff, which is where the indigenous indigenous knowledges often get pushed, even though we're all aware that our knowledge is very scientific and very structured in a way that should be protected as data. The way administrators tend to understand data is not as our stories or our understandings of the world as the, as the way we present it or historicize that. So yes and no, yes, very good protections. It is enactable, but the, I have found that I've had to mention it to people who are doing other projects um, that, hey, by the way, like, are you thinking about data ownership? Oh no, but you know, it's NSF, so UC is going to own it. And it's like, wait, wait, no, no, <laughs> that's not actually true anymore. Is this written down somewhere? And the answer is no. UCLA itself also doesn't have an official data policy. It has an interim policy, at least again, last I left off on it. That was as of a few months ago when I checked. I think researchers have to look at the full picture of, okay, I'm going to work with indigenous community. In my opinion, we should be in relation when we're doing research. It's not just one's in charge over the other. Like at the end of the day, we have to think about sovereignty and honoring tri data sovereignty or tribal sovereignty. I've seen publishings of writers saying, and like working with environmental DNA, saying that this needs to happen. We need to be working more with indigenous people. So I know the conversation is there. I just don't personally believe that it's being taught and put into practice, like at the actual levels of when we're doing the research. In the global indigenous repatriation movement, when we started going to museums and archives and trying to get access to our belongings and, and heritage and, you know, ancestors, the reality hits you head on really bluntly when you have to ask permission you know, just to have access. They're setting all types of parameters around how you can access, who can access, when to access. If repatriation is even up for discussion, they're also setting the terms of return. The public is left with the impression that this is scholarly and um, was acquired seamlessly um, and, and likely ethically when the fact is that they were acquired unethically and illegally and under times of duress and in the process of taking, studying, storing, preserving, managing, they also claimed ownership rights over our stuff. It's about making sure that Indigenous laws are respected and used as precedents for ownership, access, and control of Indigenous cultural heritage. So when it comes to Tsimtian heritage, right, all of our bodies, objects, and knowledges, 
I'm saying that to understand them as property, you have to understand them as property relations from the vantage of Subjian law. <laughs> and for us, that means that there is a place for them in our sovereignty structure, right? And so it's not the same as whoever pressed record or whoever wrote it down first or whoever decided to, you know, claim an, an, an ownership, right, is not like the primary right holder. And in fact, they can't even think about it as intellectual property in the limited ways in which Western intellectual property systems understands it. You know, we have our own intellectual property systems and they're dynamic. <laughs> they are super dynamic and super relational. They en engender what I write about in my most recent article in the Native American and Indigenous Studies Journal. I um, wrote my first article on rematriation and it's called Tsimshan Law, Rights of Relationality and Protocols of Return. And there I'm showing how I talk a little bit about how, you know, we have our own intellectual property systems. Um, we just think about them <laughs> and engage them in very different ways. But what they do engender are these sort of rights of relationality. Um, and so it's not the same sort of individualistic possession, right? The current property regime, the Western property regime, the colonial property regime actually perpetuates and, and privileges. There's room for individual multiple layers of ownership on, some, on a, a single thing. So you could have, I use examples of like Christine from my dance group, the leader of our dance group, who asked me to keep an eye out for her songs. You know, she's responsible for composing the majority of the songs that our dance group sings to date. And so she composes these Tim Fian songs using our language. So while she maintains the property, like the intellectual property rights as a composer, she has made sure that it's like we all have the right to sing this because of our relationship to her and to the dance group and to place, right? As a people, <laughs> the way the system is set up, we can't be like, yeah, this is my song. And every time I go and sing it, I just like, yeah, this is my song. I'm going to share this song. I have to follow our protocol, our law and, and protocol around property and property relations by explaining, I'm going to sing this song that Christine Martin has composed and has granted permission, right? Rights of relationality to me and to our dance group because of our relationship to this dance group and to this place. And so that's law. That's legality, but it's maintained through embodiment, right? Through relationality, not through some sort of copyright register. <laughs> and what that does is, is create these really dynamic systems that are kind of, it, it, they're kinship based and hereditary based, but they're also community based. So it, it strengthens our relationships between other nations. Um, now I'm on like this advisory council for the Canadian Music Centre because they have this whole repository of songs that are free for the taking and that a lot of musicians are being trained to go to the archive, find a good song that represents the culture to demonstrate your diversity in your musical repertoire. And so us on the advisory council are going through the catalogue to say what things like shouldn't be there. And that's what happens when people just have access to our songs and are not Colleges without having to ask permission from the community, without knowing the sacredness of it, what its use value is, 
where it belongs within the sovereignty structure, like who owns it. None of that knowledge is there. So people can do whatever the heck they want with it. And that's where the misappropriations come in. That's where the harm comes in. Um, We just had a situation a few years back at the Canadian Opera Company. I was involved in some of these discussions because of my work, but they put on a, an opera to celebrate Canada's 150th year celebration, right? Um, So they're doing all these bicentennial celebrations around and the Canadian Opera Company responded uh, with one of their composers to put on an opera about the infamous um, Métis leader, uh, Louis Riel, who was hung for his uh, resistance to the colonial system. So they did this opera. We were part of these conversations because the composer went to the archive right, where they can find a good native song from back in the day that can then be used in the opera. So they go and get a song from this collection um, of songs that the father of Canadian anthropology collected, Marius Barbeau. So you have Boaz and then Barbeau. Barbeau is doing his work up here, and he recorded some pretty sacred songs from Niska peoples. Niska are the neighbors to Tsimtian. Niska, Gixan, and Tsimtsian peoples are all, we're related. We have similar origin story or a shared origin story, and we have a shared language. We all speak Somalia. We're up around the Skeena and Nass rivers. So this composer, without doing any due diligence, without being required to ask, you know, just getting access to it, ends up putting this song into the opera. And it's sung in the opening aria where Louis Riel's wife is like, it appears that she's singing a lullaby to her baby. It's odd to hear like an indigenous song in operatic form too. It's kind of weird, like how they just kind of translate it to this operatic form. So no one could really tell, no one would really know. But if you're Niska, you would know. And actually that's how it came to be discovered that the song that they were using was actually a mourning song that belonged to one of the houses of the Niska people very clear and it's a very powerful morning song time and a place for it right yet they're using it as a lullaby in this play about a metis leader a niska morning song being appropriated to symbolize this mother child bonding experience through a lullaby in operatic form. Okay, so just had to give you the context because it's ridiculous, right? People need to be clear on the ridiculousness of it all. Stop treating these things as benign and normal and natural. It's not. And this is problematic for very various reasons. That was a breach of Niska law and protocol. And you know what? It's because this whole system allows for these people to just do that. And that's why The archive is a dangerous place when it comes to indigenous knowledges, whether it's our songs or our oral histories, um, because they're treated as public domain, they're up for grabs for anyone, and then that's where the misappropriation, the misuse, and the harm gets perpetuated. So yeah, we were part of those discussions, and the NISCA got involved, and they signed a modern day treaty so that they had self-government representatives come and be a part of it. And they were like, no, take that out. What are you doing? They're like, oh, it's too late. And <laughs> the play's already on. And instead we'll have these conversations and we'll let you do like this opening thing to, you know, it was really, <laughs> it's that type of stuff that just, you know, I have low tolerance for. I have low tolerance for, and I need other people to have the same level of low tolerance for, right? 
come on board if you really care about humanity and equality and all of that stuff and you use these important words like social justice and reconciliation and decolonization i need you to stop talking about it and being about it going and seeking these things you need to be aware of all of these sort of sensitivities that exist and um in the work that I've done, I am trying to move forward in a positive way by accessing these institutions in my own capacity and also holding them back if they sort of encroach on my personal space or our, our tribal community protocol or in reciprocal respect in those relationships. I've been very fortunate to so far have pretty positive interactions with these places. I know that people in my family have worked for decades trying to build places where they can sit at the table and have these conversations with museum curators and heads of museums to follow the law, but also to have an understanding of the importance of either safely housing these items or respectfully returning these items and why. My aunt has been involved in NAGPRA rematriation and repatriation for at least two decades. So in the work that I do, I have to be extremely respectful to the work that's been done before, not only by my family, but people in my community, people that are, you know, running archaeological firms to have Native presence, people that are academics in my community that have gone to school to provide spaces for us to not feel so uh, spoken down to or kept out of and away from our, our languages and our songs and everything else. And so you can't just sort of brazenly go in there and say, oh, you know, you guys are terrible people for all of the things that you've done and all of the things that you've exploited. And, you you know, meet them with such anger, although it's completely warranted to have that anger, it's not going to move you forward in any sort of way. It sort of stirs dust up and it sort of re-patterns that sort of cycle of anger and trauma response. And so I have actively tried to avoid doing that in some of these spaces. And sometimes I get really frustrated because sometimes that's sort of the reaction that you want to have, seeing you know, your, your ancestors' remains placed in these cardboard boxes sometimes in archives or seeing walls like lined with mortars and pestles that you know have been ceremonially killed and they're from burials. There's been so many instances where I've just seen things that should not be there. And all I can do is tell the curators these things need to go home. You guys really don't have any place in keeping them because you don't understand how they've been treated or that they are from burials because of, you know, X, Y, and Z. It's, it's hard to do sometimes, it really is. But, you know, I think for the betterment of everybody within our communities, if we can continue to sort of have these museums give us space to have these conversations, then we can only sort of move forward. I will say that like within the last five years, it's been pretty eye-opening to be able to see so many museums taken to task on these things and Native communities come together and really fight for rematriation, repatriation of tribal artifacts, regalia, of ancestors, of burials, of so many things. But there's also so many places where continued destruction is happening, especially here in Southern California. I care about land access for Indigenous people and I care about what that land access looks like and what it means and how we understand each other, non-Native and Native. I care about that communication and I care about what that means for our planet. So because I care about all of those things, I have an obligation to care about this data issue because I'm going to be producing work that might come back on the communities I care about. We've been doing the research and of course it's bringing up all the scientific knowledge, but again, 
spiritual knowledge, ceremonial knowledge that's private to the community. And I think that I'm so happy that that's where we're at. And even though um, it's a struggle that we had to go through that, I hope that it continues to open the door for future tribes. And so that way it's easier for us to assert our data sovereignty. There's no difference between a physical object, like a physical basket being brought back and a song that you can listen to. They're both entities in their own right. There's many communities when things are brought back, there's, you know, ceremony, community ceremony that happens. Despite all my cynicisms for everything, I really try to remain hopeful in a small way so my kids don't have to deal with this on the same level that I've had to deal with it. Probably the same way that my dad thought about it when he was working in it. Like I, maybe my kids won't have to you know, deal with so much weight. And I think that's what every generation kind of hopes for. Challenging Colonialism is produced by myself, Daniel Stonebloom, and Martin Risso-Martinez. Interviews by Martin. All audio engineering and editing by myself. Music by G. Gonzalez. Follow us on Twitter, subscribe, rate, and review. For more information, reading, and to get involved, see links in the notes.